Almost every week here at Gateway, we'll take a passage from the Bible because we believe it's extraordinary, we believe it's God's Word, and we pick it apart, and we massage it, and we look at how it applies to our lives, and we're going to do that again this morning. I'm going to begin with a really big picture perspective, however, and we're going to get to this picking the Scripture apart right at the very end of what we say. I'll explain that in a minute. But let's start over here in a different place. Let's start with this. For those of us who develop some emotional health and some emotional maturity in our lives, and some of us don't, honestly, but for those of us who do, we'll eventually get to the point where we realize our responses are us. Our responses, the way we respond to things, are us. Now, what's the right way to respond? Let's take, for instance, anger. I can't tell you how many times over the years I've had, uh, heard someone say, ah, she makes me so mad. Or, you make me so mad. Nobody makes you mad. Our responses are us. Let's give an illustration. Let's suppose you go to the gas station, you're going to pump gas in your car, and somebody's coming in right after you to pump gas. This is me coming in right after you. Uh, going to pump gas, and you, you take the hose. I have trouble with English at 11 o'clock. You take the hose out of your car, you're done, and the other person is there, and they're going to come in right after you, and you don't turn the nozzle off for some reason, you spray gas on them. So then, let's imagine, they get really mad. What are you doing? They punch you in the face. There are 10,000 different responses to that, right? Anything from, oh, I'm so sorry that my face got in the way of your fist, to the other end of the spectrum, there is a loaded gun in my car and you better start running because it's coming for you. What's the right response on that spectrum of responses? Well, the key thing, first of all, is to recognize that our response is us. So our response to our wacky neighbors or to our hurtful friend at school or to the CNN or Fox News anchor or to someone's Facebook post, those responses are us. They are our response to external stimuli. True, there is an external stimuli, but the response is ours. It's us. And not all responses are created equal. So what is the right response? Some of you remember this slide from the first week of this series of conversations this summer. And in almost everything that happens, almost every difficulty in life, there is a spectrum of responses. On one end of that spectrum, there's the victim response. Why me? How could the teacher have done that to me? How could the police officer? Everybody else was speeding. And on the other end is the response of the entitled. A lot of us in Northern Virginia have this. How dare you? Let me see your manager. And somewhere in between is the response that Peter advocates to trouble, to difficulty. It is the response of endurance, the response of staying, the response of consistently being in and who and of what God wants us to be in and who and of. All right, this summer, we're working our way through the New Testament book of 1 Peter in a series of lessons that we call Endure. Now, 1 Peter, I'm going to give you some quick giddy-up about 1 Peter. 1 Peter was written by one of Jesus' first disciples, Peter, to a group of churches scattered throughout the Roman provinces in the area of what is modern-day Turkey. The recipients of the letter were social and political outsiders. They would have had a difficult time being able to afford Northern Virginia, by the way, which is the same as many of us, right? 
They were also religious outsiders, really. Most of them had come from a world dominated by gods that were many and capricious. In other words, they were typical Roman pagans. But their lives had been radically changed by an encounter with the one living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, most people in the Roman world considered these views at the very least odd and maybe even dangerous. And there was a growing sense that the, the whole worldview represented by the Jesus movement needed to be stamped out. In fact, in certain places and during certain decades of the first centuries, Jesus' followers were being severely persecuted for their faith, and, and that may have been happening surrounding the group of people to whom Peter wrote this letter. So how should Peter's readers respond to this? To the mistreatment, to the persecution, to the general difficult conditions of their lives. How should they respond to difficulty? We have that same set of questions, don't we? How should we respond? What is the right response to difficulty, to trial, to mistreatment? Peter wrote this letter to answer those questions for them and for us. So, this is the pivotal passage in 1 Peter. That's the way one of the commentaries that I read this week introduced the paragraph that we're going to be talking about this morning. This short little paragraph actually builds on everything that came before, and it introduces everything that's going to come after. So this morning, Peter doesn't get particularly practical for us. That's going to happen in the coming chapters. He's going to unwind this. But today, he gives us the principle. And look, this is one of the most important principles that you and I will ever hear about. So, with that epic introduction, we need to read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to look. 1 Peter, it's way in the back. Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, so that you can refer back to it when we drill down and get to the point where we're actually talking about this 1 Peter passage. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. It's a brief paragraph that might be the pivotal passage in this entire letter. And let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's Word. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Okay, you may be seated. All right, as I said, Let's imagine that the 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 passage is sitting right here. And then above that is the entire letter of 1 Peter. What we're going to start with this morning is way up here. We're going to look at the, the whole story, of our, the context for our lives. We're going to get that epic. We were designed, you and I, for deep relationship with God, a relationship that rightly orders all other relationships. We were created to be in sync with ourselves, with one another, with our world, and with God. And then our great-great-great-great-grandparents decided to depart from that. They disobeyed God. They went their own way. They severed the relationship. There was a great fissure in what was intended to be for us and around us and about us. Some theologians call this the fall. There was a rupture in God's plans and in our design uh, the Christian author C.S. Lewis has a great analogy for this. He says, for the aftermath of this, he says, I want you to imagine that there's a dog who lives on a giant mansion with 
vast fields in which he can just run and play and frolic. There, there are special places designed for him to, to do his thing. And he can go wherever he wants to, except he can't go beyond the fence because beyond the fence is danger and it's the woods. But anywhere else, enjoy and run and be free. And every day, several times a day, the master loves on the dog and pets him and plays with him and grooms him and washes him and feeds him constantly water and food, all that he wants and needs. One day, the dog is out running across the field and he notices on the other side of the fence a rabbit. And he's curious and he turns his attention. He takes a step toward the rabbit. Master is up at the mansion, sees what's happening, and he yells out at the dog and he says, Ed, that's the dog's name. He says, Ed, it gets the dog's attention. The dog turns around, sees the master. He comes running back. This is me running back. He runs back. He licks the master's hand. They play together. They have a great time. He feeds him. Next day, sees the rabbit again. He turns and takes a couple of steps. This time, Ed looks back at the master, looks back at the rabbit, looks back at the master, and turns back. This time, there's a little limp in his step because he noticed his own hesitation. But he comes back, and the master welcomes him, plays with him, grooms him, feeds him. A few days later, he's a little further out in the field. He sees the rabbit on the other side of the fence. He turns and he begins to run toward the fence, and now he's out of earshot. He doesn't hear the yell and the warning. He gets to the fence, leaps over, runs into the woods, chases the rabbit in the woods, doesn't get the rabbit, and gets lost. Then he has to spend his life foraging for food in the woods, killing and eating raw, and never being groomed. Occasionally gets stuck on a branch or something, gets all matted in his coat. C.S. Lewis says, we are the children of that dog. Being raised in the woods, in conditions that aren't natural to us, in a world that is in effect at war with us, that is not designed to take care of us, a world that is by its design at enmity, at odds with us. As a result of this great fissure, a deep neediness was born in us that manifests itself in three ways. So don't miss this. Number one, we need to be changed. Our orientation, our very nature needs to be reordered. We need to be redeemed. We need a radical fresh start. We need a do-over. We need to be changed. Secondly, we need to have mercy extended to us. We were created to live at the mansion, run free in the fields, have the master clean us and care for us. We no longer live there. We need mercy. We can't get where we want to get by our own means, no matter how clever we are, because what we really want is to run free and be fed by the hand of the master, and no matter how good we get at making life happen for us in the woods, we will never be fully satisfied. We can't find or earn our way back to the mansion. We live in an environment that constantly challenges us. We need mercy. Little parentheses, just an aside here. Look, this is the principal reason why atheism has a suicide problem, and it does. Statistically, there is no purpose and no mercy in the world as they conceive of it. We're off by ourselves, making it up, and never being satisfied. We need mercy. Third, we need a connection to others. We were made for a relationship. I want to prove this to you. Let me prove it. Consider for a moment the fact that you and I get hungry. 
I'm convinced that that suggests that there's something like food that our life is ordered around, something that will satisfy that need. Whether you believe in God's design or in evolution or a combination of the both, the hunger impulse undeniably suggests that there exists a satisfaction for that impulse. Hunger implies the existence of food. We were designed to experience our deepest needs, otherwise we wouldn't be motivated to meet them. If you and I didn't experience hunger, we're too busy. We would never eat until we just fell over dead from starvation one day. The fact that we hunger suggests that there is a thing like food. Well, in the same way, the fact that you get lonely suggests that there is something which could meet that need. Why should we ever feel lonely? Why is there such a feeling as loneliness? How did humans develop it? The best explanation would be that we were designed with it. We were designed for relationship. That's why we experience loneliness. Deep in our being, we need relationship the way we need food. But the conditions created by the giant fissure make relationship difficult and thorny, so we get lonely. Let me take another example. Consider the fact that you feel guilty sometimes. Doesn't that suggest that there is a higher standard of behavior toward which our actions and responses point? Why should there be such a feeling as guilt? Aren't we wired for self-preservation? That's what the biologists tell us. So how does guilt help that? Now, you may know, there are lots of evolutionary sociological explanations for guilt. That's because many philosophers have recognized the logical need to explain guilt. I mean, if, if you don't believe in God and you don't believe in a purposeful universe, then guilt has to be explained somehow. But, spoiler alert, their efforts never quite answer the question, really. Now, let's be as objective as we can be. There are questions that faithful Christians have a hard time answering about God. But this is one of those questions that you need to know that all of the questions aren't on our side of the equation. This is one of those philosophical, logical questions that nobody gives a good answer to. I admire the philosophers who try. They at least recognize the need to explain this, and this is a very difficult question to answer if you don't believe in God. I read an article this week, don't ask me why, in a magazine called Philosophy Today that summarizes honestly the problem. I'm going to read this to you. By the way, this author was not a person of faith. He said this, I'm going to quote, people like Freud, this is the atheist psychologist Sigmund Freud, people like Freud have neutered, they've cut off, they've emasculated, they've damaged the notion of guilt by untethering it, unhooking it, from any moral foundation. In this sense, they make guilt unreal. It seems like fabrication because without any moral connection, there's nothing to be guilty of. How can we be guilty for anything when we are accountable for nothing? But there's a problem here. We do feel guilty. And explaining it away does not make it go away. And in fact, this philosopher doesn't answer. He just acknowledges, we don't have a good answer for this. I'm convinced you cannot explain guilt satisfactorily apart from acknowledging that within us there is something that points higher and holier. There is within us an echo of a past connection from which we have been disconnected by the great fissure. I'm all over the place. Are you with me this morning? All right. You didn't answer, but that's okay. We're going ahead anyway. Here's the point. We need to be changed. We need to be extended mercy. We need to be connected. That's the big picture. All right. 
So let's zoom back in now and let's get back to 1 Peter. We're going to go back to 1 Peter where 1 Peter gives us some excellent news. Yay, they said. Cue the music and the fanfare and crowd noises. Peter informs us that because of what God has done in Jesus Christ, we have been. We have been changed. We have become mercy recipients and we have been connected. All God's people said amen. But they were super excited when they said it. I mean, they were muted because this is incredible stuff, but they were really excited because we have been, he said. Chapter 1, verse 3, Peter says, God has given us new birth. In chapter 1, verse 18, he says, you've been redeemed. In chapter 2, verse 3, he says, you're like newborn babies. We have been changed, radically so. Peter also makes it clear, we've received mercy. Chapter 1, verse 5, Peter tells us, you've been shielded now by God's power. Chapter 2, verse 10, Peter says, once you had not received mercy, you lived in the woods. Now you have received mercy. And finally, we've been included, we've, we've been drawn in, we've been connected. According to chapter 2, verse 5, we are a part of a giant spiritual building. We are a little stone that's part of a giant spiritual building. Chapter 2, verse 10, he says, once you are not a people, completely disconnected, now you're the people of God. Awesome, incredible, amazing, changed, mercified, connected, I made up mercified. Well, if any of that is true especially if all of it is true, why aren't things better? <laughs> why aren't things always completely copacetic if our deepest needs have been met? The Bible gives three explanations. I want you to hear this. We're going to threaten to be boring still, but these explanations, they frame our entire lives. This is the condition in which we live. I especially want you to hear the third, because that's where Peter hunkered down. First explanation is because culture is at odds with us. This is part of why Peter addresses us as aliens and strangers, by the way. We are people, listen, we are people who have learned our true identity. There's a mansion, we belong there, we were created for it, and we're going there. We get secret little visits from the master occasionally, but we still live in the woods even though we do not live by the rules of the woods. So the culture is at odds with us. There is a natural friction. Secondly, we have an enemy. Now, if you're outside of faith or if you're on the edge exploring it, this is the part where it's a little spooky. I get it, but it's true. There is an evil counterfeit master ruling in the woods. And he almost never lets himself be seen, but we constantly feel his influence. And he doesn't like us. He sets himself against us. And then the third reason. And this is the reason that Peter hunkers down on. The third reason things are not always copacetic with us is the one Peter focuses on. Things are not always right and easy with us because we have desires within us that are trying to kill us. They literally wage war against us. These desires are like cancer. You know cancer cells are real living cells. In fact, they're not only alive, sometimes they're very robust. They multiply. They're alive and robust, but they're not healthy for us. They kill us. In the same way, our desires are very real. And sometimes they're very robust, but they're not healthy for us. They can kill us. 
These desires were developed while we were in the woods and unaware of our true home at the mansion. And these desires are adapted to life in the woods, a world where you're as good as your last performance. They're adapted to a world which demands that you show your worth by your accomplishments or by your experiences or by the stuff you own or by how, by how cool you are or who your friends are. These desires are adapted to a world that places ultimate value on comfort and pleasure, but that same world doesn't supply comfort and pleasure, at least not easily or cheaply. Counselors will often speak about children who are raised in war-ravaged countries as having maladaptive desires and instincts. Maladaptive means they adapted or developed in the wrong way. So their worldview, their sense of themselves, their sense of security, even their understanding of love and what love is, it was developed in such extreme and extreme negative conditions that they were misshapen. So they ultimately have trouble adapting to the conditions of normal human interaction. Peter reminds us that we have maladaptive desires and instincts that set us still apart from God and His work in our lives. He calls them sinful desires. Desires that trespass, that go against God's best for us. And these desires wage war against the changes that God is bringing about in us. They deny the effects of God's mercy, and they act to break down our relationships with others. Remember the three things that we said that we deeply need. We have a set of desires that often work against those needs being met in us. So, that brings us all the way back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. What is the solution to this dilemma? How are we to live then? Peter offers the solution. It's very simple and very straightforward. It's not easy, but it's not complicated. He offers it first negatively and then positively, right? So negatively, here's the solution to the condition in which we live. Negatively, we must abstain from these maladaptive desires. They are not good for us. In fact, they might kill us. And you and I don't need proof of this, do we? We already know it. Let's take an example. Lust. If lust were good for us over the long term, then we wouldn't feel guilty for tasting its fruit. If lust were good for us over the long term, then it would always promote health in relationships. Look, beautiful and wealthy people would always be happily married, and their infidelities wouldn't really matter if lust were good for us. If lust were good for us over the long term, then its activity would produce healthy young boys and girls. But that doesn't work. We know it doesn't work that way. Well, let's take pride. If pride were good for us, then our efforts to promote ourselves would make other people feel good about us and respond warmly to us. Instead, they turn their backs and roll their eyes. Our harsh judgments of others would just make people feel warm and better about us. They'd want to be around us if pride were good for us. If pride were good for us, our deceits and our manipulations would strengthen our relationships instead of causing us to feel ashamed when we use them. If pride were good for us, then the greatest leaders in the world would be narcissists. But study after study, not Christian studies, secular social science studies, study after study has demonstrated the exact opposite. Narcissists make terrible leaders over the long run, and they're very hard people to follow. 
I could go on, but I don't need to. We must abstain from these desires. They're trying to kill us. However, we don't want to abstain. Because we desire it. That's the point of the exercise. Even though we know, we know that they're trying to kill us. We often hide that fact from ourselves because we want what we want. Peter offers the only counsel that makes any sense of stain. In other words, do whatever you must to not follow where those maladaptive desires lead. Then immediately he reinforces this negative side with the positive solution. He says, live good lives. In fact, our lives are to be so good that others around us whose lives are far from God will see God through us and will give glory to him through their lives as well. Even when things are difficult. Even when we face serious conflict at work or in the neighborhood or at school. Even when our health is challenged. Even when those around us mistreat us. Even when they accuse us of doing wrong. Live good lives. That's how you respond. Let's wrap up. I know that this is not particularly practical. I mean, we could have a series of conversations. We could talk together for a long time about abstain. How? What does that mean? Live such good lives. Tell me. Peter's going to, but we're not going to do all of that this morning. But you know what? I want to give some real quick general guidance, especially for those of you who are newer to the Christian walk. I want you to hear this, and I'm going to break it down to two things. So general principles, I want to break this down to two things, and I hope this will be helpful for you. And this is so important, we're going to go third grade, and we're going to say it together. What we need to do is profess and confess. I'll unpack that just a little bit, but I want you to remember this. So we're going to say it on three. One, two, three, and you'll say profess and confess. One, two, three. Pretty good. We're going to try just this side of the room. One, two, three. You guys do better. One, two, three. You didn't really do better, but you tried hard. Thank you. So let's break that down just a little bit more. It's not on the screen, but I want you to profess two things. When you're thinking about professing, saying out loud, saying with your heart, mind, voice, and will. I want you to think about professing two things, and I want you to think about confessing two things. I want you to profess the truth about God. He's God, and you're not. So the exercise here is to surrender. My best effort has gotten me here. It's pretty good. I'm in Northern Virginia. I live next door to the American dream, and I'm just not happy sometimes. There's something missing. And that was my best effort. I surrender. Help. Help. You're God. I'm not. Profess the truth about God. Second thing is profess the truth about your desires. Don't hide this from yourself. There are maladaptive desires in you that are killing you. Don't give yourself an out. Don't skirt. Profess the truth about them. Those desires are killing me. God, I want to stop. Help me. Then I want you to confess. I want you first to confess to God. God, I'm so sorry. I've come up short of your design for me. I know it. 
I sense it this morning, perhaps. And I want what you want for me. I want to live near the mansion. I want to be stroked by your hand. I want to be fed by your trough. I want that connection with you, and I have disturbed that connection. And then I want you to confess to someone else. That's one of the hardest steps here. I want you to find someone else in your life, somebody in your posse, and I want you to confess what's up. Because this has power to break the pattern of the maladaptive desires working their way out in your life. So in that confession, just a little word, I don't want you to just say, you know, when I was 17, I, some of you are 17 or younger, but I'm talking about those of you who are ancient. You might not be 106 like I am, but you're halfway there. You're 39 or you're 47, and you, I don't want you to go to someone and say, when I was 17, you know, I, I was drinking and I got stopped by the police for drunk driving, and I just I feel so bad about that. No, what I want you to confess is this week. I bought something, and I didn't tell my husband about it. I didn't want him to know. This week, I looked at something I shouldn't have looked at. I know it. I need your help. So I want you to confess to God, and I want you to confess to somebody else in your posse. One, two, three, profess and confess. One, two, three. Confess and Listen. Friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that they accuse you of doing wrong. They'll glorify God with their lives on the day he visits. Now, all of this is made possible because of what God did in Christ. That's what we brag about when we get together at Gateway. So I want to read you another quick section from Peter. One of the things in reading Peter's letters, we've talked about this, those of us who are preaching this summer, you know, Peter's constantly interrupting himself. It's kind of hard to follow him sometimes if you're reading him logically, but it's awesome. And often when he interrupts himself, he interrupts himself because he can't stand it. He starts bragging about Jesus, and this is one of those points. Chapter 1, verses 17 through 22, Peter says this, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but it was with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen for the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and your hope are in God. Every Sunday morning, we try to find ways to brag about Jesus. But once in a while here, we celebrate the meal that he reminded us to celebrate. I think it's God's audiovisual aid. It uh, demonstrates to us in a practical touchable, eatable way, what he did for us in Christ. So we're going to celebrate that this morning together. And before we do so, we are going to confess and profess. Today it'll be in that order. Confess and profess on three. One, two, three. Yes. That's getting weaker and weaker. 
Let's stand, if you would, and let's say this together, and let's do our best to mean it. Most merciful God, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. Well, there it is. There is those maladaptive desires. It's like, stop it, right? Those desires are adapted to a world that we don't have to live in anymore. Let's go on. We confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And now let's spend a minute confessing to him right now. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you promised us that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just, and you'll forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we receive that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, congregation, let's profess. Let's declare what we believe about God. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So on the last night of his life, Jesus was doing the Passover meal with his disciples, and he kind of instituted the giddy-up for this. this is, we're remembering this when we do that. i got to say something about this. I occasionally say this at Gateway. But this was the meal that Jews had been celebrating for 1,400 years, and they were commemorating the whole Moses thing when God parted the sea and essentially delivered the Israelites through Moses. And this was a meal, every piece of this meal remembered some aspect of God's great deliverance. And Jesus did something that no self-respecting rabbi would ever do. This is why we say this is not just a good person. This was not a good teacher. He was a lunatic. Or he was telling the truth because he reinterpreted this meal. He took the bread that they had been breaking for generations. And he said, this is my body. I did this 
It was me all along. I delivered you. And I'm doing so still. So I want you to receive this today as his deliverance. We're changed. We've been mercified. I made it up. We've been connected. Let's receive this today. The body of Christ broken for you. Take it and eat. At the same meal, he took the cup. There were four cups in the Passover meal, and each of them represented a different thing. Most scholars believe that Jesus had the third cup, the cup of thanksgiving, the cup where the participants were essentially saying, thank you, God, for what you have done, redeeming us, saving us, delivering us, connecting us, making us a people. Again, Jesus said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Take it and drink. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's uh, put an exclamation point on this. Bring the lights down if you would even. Let's stand together and let's sing the bridge of this song. If you know it, choir, belt it. And you'll get it.
So what I'd like to say to you is thank you all for coming. Before you leave, get connected with someone because that's what we're all about, right? Touch someone, talk to someone. Have a great weekend. Go in peace.